Welcome to the Gothamist Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural Gothamist Podcast. This is a podcast about New York City and everything in it. Its mysteries, its strange traditions, and of course, its characters. I'm your host, Ben Yakis. But don't worry, you'll also be hearing from plenty other Gothamist staffers in the upcoming episodes, at least assuming they return some of my emails. For this episode, we took a trip to the New York Public Library to talk about Jack Kerouac's little-known fantasy baseball obsession, and we also talked about some of our own subway fantasies and fears. But first up, our publisher and resident native New Yorker Jake Dobkin has been writing advice columns on New York City anxiety, bagel toasting, commuter etiquette, and everything in between for years now. He stopped by today to talk about New Yorker struggles with alternate side parking. We're pretty sure there's a German term for it, but we haven't found it yet. So keep listening and subscribe on iTunes, or however one subscribes to podcasts. We're still figuring it out. So here's contributor Amber Scora talking to Jake. The next stop is Ask a Native New Yorker. Dear Native New Yorker, a friend of mine broke his leg and offered to let me borrow his car. The parking tickets were piling up, and he didn't have the mobility to move the car so he could comply with the alternate side parking rules. I said sure, and I used the car just twice. The rest of the time I had the car, I moved it once a week to comply with the parking rules on my street. I checked back in with my friend after two weeks and offered him the car back, because frankly, it was getting to be a real pain to circle around looking for parking. But his leg was still in the cast. Over the course of the month that ensued, there were two times I couldn't get home from work in time to move the car by 6 p.m. Alas, I got two parking tickets. Who is responsible to pay the tickets? The friend I was helping out or me? Okay, so Jake, just for those of us who don't understand, what what is alternate side parking, this concept? Why do people have to move their car from one side of the street just to the other side of the street once or twice a week? The the original idea was, you know, back in the days when there were horses and the horses would poop, you had to clean up the streets, right? So you didn't want, like, the carts blocking the streets. So, so it's uh, like a legacy from the horse poop era yeah, that hor- is still imposed on us today. Exactly. Although it still serves a purpose because if you didn't clean the streets, things like leaves and trash could... Uh, be carried down the street by the rain, end up in the sewer grates, block the sewers, then you'd have overflowing sewers, and people don't like that. So there still is some purpose for getting the streets clean. Okay, but I, I just have to check with you on something, Jake, because I've lived in New York City seven years now, and I mean, I'm around a bit. I think that I have probably seen a street cleaner go down the street maybe two times in all that time. Is, are the street cleaners really coming once a week, or are they just making you move it for some sick game or something. Well, you know, it's interesting. They, they used to actually require street cleaning twice a week. So can you imagine, like, moving your car Tuesday and Thursday? Although, yes, I think some areas do still have to do that. Right. And why? Are they, I mean, the area I know that has to do twice a week is not any cleaner or dirtier than the area I live in, which is once a week. I mean, I do see the, the street cleaner go down my block every week. I, the, street, the street does not <laughs> it's like appear... like you have special native New Yorker binoculars yeah, or no, I just spectacles. No, I notice it. I, I hear it. 
You know the sounds. Maybe I'm mistaking the garbage truck or the street cleaner for the garbage truck. That could be. But there was a period, you know, in Park Slope where they needed to change all the parking signs and they suspended alternate side of the street parking for like three or four months. So I don't think they were doing any street cleaning. And I got to be honest, I didn't really see much of a difference. That's my point. I like I think the streets, some streets look really dirty. They don't seem to be clean once a week or twice. Well, it's also, it's possible it depends on the street, right? Like maybe some streets really need a scrub in and other streets don't. It really makes me wonder if my theory that the Bowery subway station has never been cleaned is true or if it really is cleaned every week and gets that dirty again. That's a fascinating question that can probably only be resolved by you spending a week in the Bowery subway station. <laughs> a terrifying, but maybe public service I have to perform. <laughs> okay, so Jake, who is responsible to pay the tickets? Unfortunately, you are responsible for paying those tickets because you agreed to watch the car and you did not work out with your friend in advance in agreement to cover the parking tickets that would most likely be incurred, this being New York. Oh, that's, I forgot to mention this was my question. This is not the answer I wanted to hear, Jake. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sorry. I mean, that's the nature of friendship, right? I mean, it was. You gotta a- clear everything first in paper. <laughs> yeah, because you agreed to watch this guy's car. You were getting some benefit, right? I mean, a free car. You, I mean, you didn't use it, but you could have. You could have driven wherever you wanted. But part of the responsibility of watching a car is making sure it doesn't get tickets. And if you do get tickets, you have to pay them. Now, you did do your friend a favor. So at this point, you could go to him and ask nicely. Seeing as I did watch your car for a month, you didn't have to pay parking fees. Perhaps you would be willing to cover these tickets that I innocently received. <laughs> yeah. I noticed you're using some hints. Yeah, you, you know, we hint very heavily, right? Yeah, it's in, very heavy. In New York, you gotta, you gotta make clear what you want, otherwise you're not gonna get it. Uh, this is a place where you have to kind of fight for every scrap. So that's sort of like the friend New Yorker is the same as the on-the-street altercation New Yorker, except you add in a few softer words. You're still going to be pretty direct. Yeah, New Yorkers are direct with each other. Yeah, I think it was a bit of naivety on my part because I didn't realize how intense traffic police are in New York City. It it was five minutes once. Parking is no joke. I, I don't own a car, but my parents do. And I share a building with my parents. And so when they go away, I have to watch their car. And it involves alternate side of the street parking once a week where I got to move it and find a new spot. And I swear to God, there are people on the block whose whole lives are organized around parking, around finding spots. They're like the ones who like wait with their car during the whole alternate side parking period. And like the second it's over, they move their cars back in this like highly choreographed dance. And if you're not ready that second, you don't get a spot. And then they hold them for like the rest of the week. I don't even think they drive their cars. They just move them back and forth. And, you know, I mean, it could be a consuming obsession. I've seen this dance. And I I think maybe to explain to the listeners who might not have cars in New York City, I know when I first came, I didn't really understand it. I I wondered why on certain days of the week there were cars that were just idling for 40 minutes even with the owners in them. They're waiting for their free spot that the rest of of society subsidizes, right? So the way we should deal with this is to charge for street parking because they're getting a free service and they're paying for it by by waiting and, you know, and they get it because other people aren't willing to do the same thing. But think about how much space that wastes, how much 
energy that wastes the like exhaust in this the exhaust fumes yeah. you know and how all of our cars you know they're only used three percent of the time this is one of the things i'm excited about for the robot cars for robot uber is that you know the whole city could probably be served by a fleet of 50,000 100,000 cars that we could just keep in motion all the time and we we, true. we and we would just pay for the driving that we actually do the truth is like we natives two thirds of us don't have cars that's like, the thing yeah you know we get around on the subway you know taxi buses it's uh the the problem is the majority uh, cannot impose its will on the minority of car owners because they are crazy about their cars. And if you try to take it from them or tax them in any way, it's like going after the gun owners, right? They will, you will pry the steering wheel from their cold, dead hands. <laughs> it's really hard for us in the city to paint new bike lanes, to do anything that improves street safety. Because if you take away one parking space, you have like an entire neighborhood up in arms, you know, at the community board meeting screaming at you. And that's why it's changed so slowly. Luckily, when the robot cars come in three to five years, they're just going to make car ownership economically idiotic and they will eventually phase out all private cars. And that is going to be a great thing for our city. That, that may be the answer. Just let me ask you, do you think that, you know, free parking? I mean, I do, I do find that unusual about New York City. Most cities don't have free parking on the street. But do you think that maybe the thinking is because uh, I read something like 5,500 parking tickets are issued a day in New York City so the revenue is I right. think the ticket could be up to $200 or something so maybe that's the way you pay for parking for people like me when you come home too late so I would say in a month's time I got I don't know it was probably like $300 worth of tickets if you <laughs> average that over 30 days it's paying $10 a day right so it is a kind of a money maker for the city the city is probably happy you parked and got those tickets Right, so we're here in a back room of the, the office. The, oh, in the office of the New York Public Library. Could you tell us, Isaac, where are we? And you are in the office of the curator of the Henry W. and Albert A. Berg collection of English and American literature, and um, I am the curator. My name is Isaac Gewertz. Famous New Yorkers are everywhere, and when you live here, the fabric of their lives becomes woven into the fabric of yours. Or at least you imagine it to be so. You walk down the same streets, you live next to their old apartments, you frequent the bars made famous by their drinking habits. But just when you thought you knew everything there was to know about a famous New Yorker, we found out there's more. And today we are going to talk about a very famous New Yorker. I mean, I think he's really... Well, he was born in Lowell, Massachusetts, oh. uh, but he did spend a good deal of time in New York, both as a student at Horace Mann Secondary School. And then he stayed here for a while before shipping out in the Merchant Marine, before going into the Navy briefly, and came back. This was his home base. His mother lived in Queens. And he did, too, with her for a while and would come back there after his trips across country, the trips that were made famous in his best-known novel, On the Road. Jack Kerouac, though not born in New York City, spent a great deal of time here. Things you do know about this famous New Yorker? Beat generation, writing from the road, spontaneous prose. But there might be something you didn't know. 
So um, the library has uh, obviously a lot of Jack Kerouac books, but you have some archives. Yes, well, we have his archive. I mean, the the vast majority of all of his papers, I'm sure over 95, 97% of everything he wrote and typed is, is here. Isaac sits before me at a cluttered desk. Around him are various objects. A metal lantern that Kerouac used when he worked on the TransUnion Railroad, some journals, and a large scroll of paper, typewritten. All of these things seem like what one would expect to be left over from Kerouac's life. But there was one giant mysterious box. Well, we have one of the several boxes of the fantasy sports material that he kept. Turns out, Jack Kerouac had done more than create literary masterpieces. Throughout his life, he created entire seasons of baseball. Isaac pulls out a large binder. That's a big thing now, and there are many different ways of doing it. The way he did it was he made up players, and he gave them different abilities, and he calculated how many balls and strikes a let's say, an A-level pitcher would throw the ratio of balls to strikes mm-hmm. uh, or a B-level pitcher. And then he calculated uh, what would a A-level hitter be hitting. And then he also had cards in which you would pick up the card and you'd find out the result of the confrontation between pitcher and batter based on their respective abilities. Oh, and he would play this game with friends? And he played it with friends and alone. And in these little cards, you can see him talking about, he doesn't just say base hit, you know, or single. He will say, or even a fly, you know, base hit to left field. He'll say a sharp line drive to left field because he wanted to be able to visualize it all in his head. And so then made it more realistic to him. And then he could write about it as well. Now, what you see here, and it's in this, we've got them in mylar sleeves and a binder. These are handwritten newspaper accounts. He made up, he had his own little newspaper in which he would talk about the baseball game that he had played in his fantasy game. This is the thing, from the very beginning, from early on, from the time he's, um, well, 14 years old. These are from 1936, the earliest ones. You can see this one's called... Very nice penmanship. Yes, always did have the sportsman. Do you want to read what it says? Sure. Some of it? Five cents. Cadillacs on top, exclamation point. Then underneath that, Plymouth's win, first game, one nothing beat Fords as McGuire pitches sensationally. Then he gives you a little story about it. And then you can see he has little cartoons in the back, caricatures. This was a regular feature of the sportsman. You have the hero, and then you have the goat. So here he has the hero, and you see a baseball fellow beaming with a smile. Joe Davis and Chevy's hit double. The goat, and here you see a stinking fish. I think I can hear the beginning of Kerouac's voice. Yes, you can. There's one. There's a rhythm to it. There is, and you know, there's one phrase particularly which was wonderful, where he describes a line drive to the third baseman that he said left him in a shambled heap. And <laughs> I thought that was so. I mean, he's 14 years yeah. old. You know, it was a game that grew in complexity as he grew older and into adulthood. He played it uh, virtually until near his death. He played whole seasons. So there were different, there was one league, but the first and second place teams played each other in a World Series. And he had an all-star game as well. Now here, now this is another publication called The Daily Ball. Yeah, and this one's typed. And this one's typed. Now, volume one, number one, baseball gossip news features. Now here, he 
gets into biographies of the players and of the managers and of the owners. He gives them whole life stories. But these are made-up characters. Oh, absolutely, completely. Oh. Although some names are from people, friends he knew. Other names are, he has names from history, from Scottish history, a Scottish rebellion leader. He has um, a Mexican revolutionary leader. Um, so he takes both from his own private life and from history. Mm-hmm. Like most writers, I guess. Yes. I mean, you can see this is the beginning of of his... He got very much into the finances of baseball, Mm -hmm. too, and how they were run and how much you paid for a minor leaguer and how much you paid for a major leaguer. So here you can see games, uh, the standings here, who's leading in home runs, highest six batting averages. It's quite the hobby he had. It's an obsession. Yeah. (laughs) Then you have baseball chatter. That's another publication. And now you can hear him. Now, this is writing like a sports reporter, and you can see the fiction writer coming out, too. Mm -hmm. Well, because it's all fiction. He's making it up. Bob Chase was meditatively chewing gum and twirling apple seeds with his thumb out of his 10-story window when I came in with a greeting. Genial Bill Bill Mahaffey, who used to sit in Bob's chair in the Chevy office, the Chevy meaning the baseball team, his baseball team, would have been quite a contrast to the heavy-browed, fiery-eyed, and square-jawed young man. Bill is a tender-faced, portly person and very enigmatic. But young Robert, of the Jank men, sat there and mumbled a greeting and smiled cynically before beginning his talk. How are you, Jack, said he. I guess us Chevs are confounding you boys, hey? Boys, the reporters. Sounds like Kerouac. Yeah, a little. And then and the, he typed these on the back of cut-up racing forms. His father was a tout, a racing tout. Worked for the tracks as well. Oh, yeah, I see Prince's jockey um, and odds. Now here... Um, I see a notepad there. Yes, yes, there's a notepad. There, this, this contains... Here he has Pancho Villa. Pancho Villa, who is, uh, started off as an outlaw, so he makes him a stolen base expert. <laughs> he also has a black player who wields a black bat, a Cuban player, a Cuban black player called El Negro, which actually, before the majors were integrated, there were, this is, I'm not an expert on this history, but I think there were some Cuban players of African descent who, because they were light-skinned, passed so I think by making him Cuban, I think Kerouac was recognizing that an African American could not play the game. He used he he did he used the same dodge that that professional baseball did. And you can see oh now here you go now these are these are the records of the whole game. You can see what each player did. So it's a little like three by five. Yeah, it's like book. right. It's, it's got like a scorecard really. Yeah. you can see so you can see what every hitter did. And you know, for every at bat. So, do you imagine Kerouac just? Do you think he took this from adapted from real games? Or oh no, 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 no. These are this is this is the record of the games he played. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. oh no. These he kept the record of. This is the record of game by game of every every fantasy game, every fantasy game ever played wow. in every season. But on the back of it, you have a typescript of one of his Buddhist tracts. Uh, this he said, "The Lord Buddha continued, what think you, Subhuti? If a disciple should bestow, and then you know, so." It was just working on genius. that and, and took it out. Buddha appeared in fantasy baseball. Yes. So Louis, now we have some team cards that say Cadillacs across Saint, the top. St. Louis Cadillacs. Uh, the New York Chevys. These are all named after Washington cars. Chryslers. Chryslers. <laughs> Boston Fords. You can see Pancho Villa here yeah. <laughs> uh, playing center field. Uh, Pittsburgh Plymouths manager Jack Kerouac and the Pontiacs and here you can see El Negro is playing center field for the Philadelphia Pontiacs 
Now, what's interesting is, is that he didn't make himself manager of the Boston team. I suspect that he wanted to take it more seriously. He wanted to show that he's just not some kid who wants to, who's living out a fantasy. I mean, yes. even though this is fantasy baseball, it's much more serious for him than that. So he didn't make himself manager of the team that he would root for. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think it was a matter of integrity. You've been on the subway and seen the sign, do not lean on the door. The MTA has an acronym, DOE, meaning doors opening en route. In the 1980s, this was a problem. And in 1986, when these signs were introduced, the doors opened 42 times. In the past decade, the MTA says no injuries have been reported, but it remains a fear among some New Yorkers. I'm Jen Carlson, and I wrote a post about this recently, and some of my colleagues have had fears about this happening. Here's Ben Yakis. So this is a subway fantasy of mine. It's a weird fantasy, but everyone has weird fantasies. I never sit on the subway, so I'm always leaning against the door. I'm careful, though. I don't lean against the side that's going to open. I get out of the way if anyone's coming in and out. We don't like bad, rude behavior on the subway at all. But when I'm leaning against the door, I often go into a fantasy, and I imagine the doors opening mid-transit, and I try to imagine what would happen and what would it would be like. And I imagine being sucked out into the narrow crevice between the train and the tunnel. And I can picture myself sort of grabbing onto the edge like Bruce Willis in Die Hard with a Vengeance, just dangling there. And sometimes someone grabs my arm and the entire train bandies together to pull me in, kind of like Spider-Man 2. But then other times, I just imagine myself falling off into the abyss and I picture my limbs contorting into a pretzel, just plopping as the train falls away. But then the other side of this whole fantasy thing is I imagine myself as the hero in this scenario, that somebody else is suddenly sucked out the door and I grab onto them and I, I bring them in and then I, I just get off at the next stop without saying a word and I just disappear. And that would be, to me, a perfect New York City moment. and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to the Gothamist podcast. Remain alert and have a safe day.